Amen, amen. You guys can have a seat. If you would turn in your Bibles with me to Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Um, and as you're turning there, you're probably, some of you are probably wondering, who on earth is this person? Uh, I'm a pastoral resident here at Harvest. My name is Grant Getty. Um, I also work as a theological resident here. Um, I'm getting my Master's of Divinity from Indianapolis Theological Seminary uh, and hoping to go on and do doctoral work after that. Uh, I have a wife. Uh, her name is Melissa. Um, but sadly, uh, we, we lost our son Elliot about nine months ago, uh, stillborn. Uh, but praise God, uh, we have a little girl named Willow on the way due in March. Um, so yeah, seriously, seriously. Oh my gosh. Uh, so a little bit about me. Uh, I believe that God has created me to make theology worship. Uh, we all exist as Christians to glorify God by making disciples. Um, but how we do that is unique to each one of us. Um, I believe that God has particularly called me uh, to help other people as they begin to think about God, to take things from academic to worship, where they should be. Our thoughts about God should never purely be academic. Our theology should never purely be academic. So that's why I'm fired up for today, because that's what preaching is. Um, it's, making God, it's, it, it's basically setting God's word ablaze with the truth that resides therein. And so now that you know me, I have a question for you, uh, completely unrelated to anything that I just said. Are you part of an inner ring? Sounds kind of weird. Uh, Leo Tolstoy, a very famous author in his book, War and Peace, uh, gives various illustrations of how what he calls the second system or the unwritten system, it re resides in every aspect of our life. C.S. Lewis picks up this concept in an article titled The Inner Ring. And in this article, he says that the majority of the majority of our lives is actually spent trying to get into one or another of these inner rings. And so, if you have ever been part of the cool group or the cool table in middle school, high school, or even as an adult, uh, if you are invited to closed-door meetings, chosen for special projects at your work, uh, maybe you work like 30 hours overtime and love every minute of it. Because of the confidence that your boss has in you, you probably are part of an inner ring in that sense. If you say things like OHIO and uh, Fly Ravens Fly and Who's Your Nation and Boiler Up and whatever else you want to say, uh, then you're definitely part of an inner ring. Now, the definition of an inner ring uh, is a group of individuals who, as a result of their unique relationship, their special relationship to one another, uh, they gain better benefits than they would have on their own, obviously. Uh, a family is probably the pinnacle or the epitome of an inner ring. A lot of you have probably experienced how uh, the, the nature of an inner ring is to be deceptive because once you get on the inside, there's often another ring ahead. You guys, we all probably experienced that over Christmas within our families. Maybe not, maybe just me. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, I'm convinced that this concept of an inner ring, it's absolutely a real thing. And I find myself constantly trying to get into one or another of them. But I'm also convinced that this concept is a shadow, a foretaste of something deeper, something more real, more permanent, a more real, more permanent inner ring, ultimate inner ring, to which all of our, of all of our hearts long for. And so today, in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, we are going to dive in 
to the ultimate inner ring. And we're going to learn about the dynamics of how God has allowed all, without distinction, to join him there. So if you guys would pray with me, we'll get into it. Oh, Father, Lord, we love you so much. We're so dependent on you to change our hearts, Lord. Lord, we have heads full of rocks and hearts made of stone. Help us understand and make that understanding lead to worship. God, we we beg you. Lord, show us the way that we might come to you and know you, commune with you as our ultimate triune God. Lord, we love you, thank you, and praise you. Spirit, open our eyes and move. Father, by your Son and through your Spirit. Amen. So Paul starts in Ephesians 2.11 and says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh. But we need to stop because what on earth is he talking about? So before we go on, we need to know where we came from. Uh, So Ephesians, just do a brief overview. Ephesians is a book written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus in the surrounding regions. It's a general letter, so it's not addressing a particular issue like most of Paul's letters do. Um, What Paul is talking to the Ephesians about is about what God has done in Christ to bring them back to him. Um, And that actually composes the entirety of the first three chapters. Now, the book is separated into two parts. The second part um, being chapters four through through six, is what humanity does as a result of what God has done. Um, So it's an overflow. So chapters 1 through 3 overflow into chapters 4 through 6. So where do we find ourselves today? Obviously in chapter 2. So we're still in the aspect, in the part of the book, where God, or Paul, is explaining how God has saved us. Particularly Ephesians 2. And so the passage directly preceding ours is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, Paul is telling his Gentile readers, because he's writing to the Gentiles, Gentiles Gentiles are the non-Jews. Paul is writing to the Gentiles, and he's saying, you Gentiles are dead spiritually and without any hope of reaching God. It's a a brash message. It's kind of an affront. But he says, but now and but through Christ through union with Christ in his death and his resurrection and his ascension, you have been given new life. It's a beautiful message. And a lot of us know it well. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is very, very famous as the gospel in a paragraph. But in verse 10, the verse directly preceding our verse, Paul says, not only have you been made alive, but you've actually been made new. He says, no, not, not only have you been brought from death to life, but he says, you've been recreated in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. He has made you new and given you new purpose and meaning. It's a beautiful message. And so there, we get a therefore in verse 11. That's where our passage starts. And here, Paul is going to dive deeper into the dynamics of how God, through Christ, through union with Christ, is going to bring the Gentiles, us, from death to new life. And so Paul starts his message in 11 in kind of an odd way. He says, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, and he gives this super weird little aside that we're just going to touch on. 
called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Now, what Paul is saying here is he's actually drawing a distinction. He's saying that the Jewish people are in the inner ring and the Gentile people are in the outer ring. How do I know this? Circumcision was a sign given by God to the Jews to demonstrate that they had a special relationship with God. And so by the Jews calling the Gentiles the uncircumcision, they're saying you are on the outside and we are on the inside. And so Paul is here setting the context for us, the Gentiles, 2020, Greenwood, Indiana, Protestant church, we're the Gentiles. That's pretty signed, sealed, and delivered here. Uh, We are the Gentiles. And so Paul is about to explain what he's saying, but he's just set the context. So in verse 12, Paul starts, and he uses a bit of a logical progression here. He says, remember that you were, at that time, separated from Christ with the result of being alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, or excluded from the Jews. Alienated, excluded, commonwealth of Israel, the Jews. With the result of being strangers to the covenants of promise, which were God's promises to redeem his chosen people, the Jews. Obviously. And, And then all of that with the result of having no hope and being without God in the world, or being hopelessly without God. And so many people today question the validity, or not the validity, but the value of the Old Testament for us today. A lot of people say, maybe we should just unhitch ourselves. Why not? What's the value? Paul has literally just said that apart from union with the Old Testament Jews and their Old Testament redemptive promises from God, that we are hopelessly without God. Hopelessly. Uh, no, we are dead. No way to make yourself alive. It is all of grace. But its necessity is that the Jews would be involved. But why the Jews? Why, why does the Gentile group of humanity have to be united with the Jewish group of humanity to be united to God? That seems like a really weird and complex circumstance that Paul is describing here. That seems... In our minds, it seems like it should be way simpler. It feels like it should just be humanity and God. Why is this the circumstance that we're in? Why the Gentiles and why the Jews? And why do they have to be united together? But praise God, that's literally the story of the Bible, is why that is and how that's resolved. That is, if you're wondering overall what the story of the Bible is, that's it. So let's run it back, Genesis 1, and let's just learn. Let's just see what God has told us. Uh, So God created all things. God created all things good. In fact, God existed before all things. And he created out of an overflow of his inter-Trinitarian love, not a deficit. He didn't create to supplement love in himself. He created to show and share love to creation. It's a beautiful story. And as the height, as the pinnacle of his creation, he created man, humanity, in the image of himself to be his representative, to share his glory and show himself to his creation. Humanity was the crown of creation in whom God poured out his love most fully. But the story goes, and it's not just a story, it's the the true story on which all fiction is modeled. Humanity rebelled. Humanity was unsatisfied being in a representorial role. They sought to be God themselves. We did. We sought to be God ourselves. We all know it in our hearts. But universal justice that all of our hearts can attest to would all say 
that treacherous, heinous high treason against a perfectly good and loving God and Father and King is justly, according to every standard of justice, punishable by a chasm of death only to be spanned by death and death alone. There's no hope. Humanity attacked when there was peace. Not only attacked, but sought to usurp the true king of the universe. That's us. That's the position we find ourselves in. But God. That's the story of Genesis 3 to Revelation is but God. But God, he sought us. Because even in that situation, love was still the dominant characteristic and attribute of God. Love won out. Not only did God not decimate and eradicate humanity, he gave them a promise. He said to Adam and Eve, I'm going to give you a son. And that son is going to come and he is going to crush sin and Satan and bring all of humanity without distinction back to me. He told that to Adam and Eve. And that's the story of the Old Testament. The story of the Old Testament is God calling out a particular people through whom his Savior, Jesus Christ, would come to reconcile all the world back to God. That's the beauty of it. It's not worth unhitching from. It's essential. Without it, Christ doesn't make sense. Jesus doesn't. None of it makes sense. The whole situation is so odd to begin with. Therefore, the Jews are closer to God. And rightfully so. This, this whole situation is absolutely right. And it's beautiful. Not only that, that's an inner circle worth getting into. So let's let the, Paul's message sink in here. Paul is saying that separated from Christ, we are separated from God. How do we get that? Paul is saying that separated from Christ leads us to being separated from the Jews or excluded from the people of Jews, which as a result leads us to being excluded from their relational promises from God to redeem, which obviously results in being hopelessly without God. So our first point is that separated from Christ, I'm hopelessly separated from God. Because it's separation from Christ that's the key phrase. But we all know that our crippling sin um, is the reason we're on the outside. Our, our sin is the reason we need a Savior. But some people today, and actually throughout humanity's existence, <laughs> have sought to justify themselves or to talk about their relative um, unsinfulness in comparison to some sort of arbitrary law which they uphold. But we know from Scripture and from the Westminster Catechism, which I don't know if that means anything to you guys, uh, but it's a cool, it's a really good, cat. it's like an important church history document. Um, I just realized I shouldn't have said that. Uh, it says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What that means is that sin is not just not doing something wrong from an arbitrary standard that you set for yourself. It means that sin is anything that is not actively glorifying God and everything you think, say, and do all from a heart full of love for God. It's action and heart combined. 
That's what makes Paul be able to say that all have sinned. All have fallen short of God, of the glory of God. Uh, He says, no one seeks for God. And that's why he can say that, because we all know in our hearts that we don't. Now, uh, bad news, or good news is good in proportion to bad news. Uh, Just like uh, getting mauled by a bear is infinitely worse than being mauled by some sort of predatory mouse. (laughs) In saying that, being saved from a grizzly bear is infinitely greater than being saved from some sort of predatory mouse that's attacking you. Um, Our sin is enormous, absolutely enormous. And so how much more is our Savior, like, absolutely glorious, amazing? And so sit in the separation that we have from God and our separation from Christ because it's our sin that makes our Savior beautiful. So, Paul goes on. He sees us in our brokenness, and he encourages us. He says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, we, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, this little phrase, in Christ, it means united with Christ. So he's saying that, being united, but now, being united with Christ, we are brought near to God. So just as separation was the basis for our hopelessness, so now, union with Christ is the basis for our eternal hope. So John Murray is an excellent theologian, and he talks on union, union with Christ a lot. Um, but he says, most poignantly on union with Christ, he says, union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It's not simply a phase of the application of redemption. It underlies every aspect of it. But, wow, great. Union with Christ is awesome. What is union with Christ? Martin Luther, the one who sparked the Reformation in 1517 by nailing the 95 Theses on the castle door of Wittenberg, he decided to illustrate union with Christ um, by a mighty and powerful king uh, who took to be his only bride a harlot. And he says, The king says to her, All that I am I give to you. All that I have I share with you. And so he gives to her the status of royalty and all that is his. And she turns to him and says, All that I am I give to you. And all that I have I share with you. And so the poor, broken woman shares with Jesus, with King Jesus, all her sin, all her brokenness, all her hopelessness. Therefore, the sinner can consider their sin in the face of death and hell and say, if I have sinned, yet my Christ who is mine has not sinned, and all his is mine and all mine, my sin, my death, my hopelessness has been taken forever by him. That is union with Christ. We who were dead in Christ have been made alive. We who were the harlot, the broken one, have been made the beautiful bride, the purified bride of God forever. We who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ through our union with Christ. 
So what does it mean to be brought near? We know that union with Christ is amazing and that we've been brought near. But what does it actually mean to be brought near? Paul answers that question immediately. He says in verse 14, For Jesus Christ himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, all by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, in order that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Christ has torn down the wall, separating humanity, dividing humanity. Like we just talked about, Jews and Gentiles, wall is gone. In the Old Testament, uh, God resided most fully with the Jews in the Holy of Holies within the temple in Jerusalem. And the temple was oriented a lot like uh, the diagram I had up here, uh, with God in the center, the Jews, and the Gentiles. That was literally the physical orientation of the temple. And what Paul is saying here is that 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 outer ring has been destroyed. It's been torn down by the blood of Christ and his cross. There's now no separation within humanity. Humanity is made one through union with Christ. So then, point two, is united with Christ, humanity is united together. But most people stop here, unfortunately. Most people's message would end with saying that, okay, we've all been united in Christ, therefore the church is a peaceful group of people. Um, It's a group of, of general reconciliation and communion and community around the sacraments and God's word, and we love one another. And that's absolutely true, and that's a very important implication. But it's not Paul's message. Paul has a grander message here. He has a more powerful message because the proximity of God's people to, them, to each other, um, to all of humanity unified together, is only valuable insofar as they are then growing in proximity to God himself. God is the central figure in this story. We are being brought near to God. All of humanity is prepared and purified by union with Christ for one purpose and one person, one person alone, our triune God. So Paul, in the same sentence, elaborates. He goes on to the fullest reason for our union with Christ. He says, And that Christ Jesus might reconcile us both, both Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is it. This is the message we've all been waiting for. This is what the whole context has been leading up to. That we have been unified in order to be reconciled. All hostility, hostility between man and man, hostility between God and man, has been finished by the God-man Jesus Christ and his cross. Finished. We've been reconciled. What began in Genesis 1 is being fulfilled by Christ. He is the Messiah promised to Adam and Eve. He is the one who will crush sin, crush Satan, and bring humanity back to God. Jesus Christ has borne all the punishment necessary to bridge the chasm between God and man, the death that we deserved. And in return, 
He's given us the righteousness we could never earn. That's the gospel. That's the beauty of our faith. That is what we have placed all of our hope and life in. There's nothing else. That's the central message of Scripture. Paul summarizes and draws out some of the implications of this as he goes forward. He says, And Christ came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, us and the Jews and one humanity. For through him we both, the new humanity, have access in one spirit to the Father. If you're looking for a pinnacle of God's redemptive purposes, we're here. We were created ultimately for communion and union with our triune God, to represent him in everything we think, say, and do, to glorify him, and to be totally satisfied in that. And that is what Christ has accomplished. He has accomplished it through bearing the punishment we can never bear ourselves. By living the righteous life, we could never live ourselves. And by being raised as God the Son incarnate in a way which none of us could ever do. He is the great reconciler. And he has brought us near. The gospel is ultimately a message of peace that's still being proclaimed today. So, Point two, second part. United with Christ, humanity is united together and reconciled with God. But here's the hard part. We've gotten to the end of a lot of the important stuff. Important. Uh, But if most of us are honest with ourselves, our hearts probably aren't moved as much as we think they should. Guilt may be setting in. Um, maybe a lack of assurance, a confusion, discouragement. Because what I've just described as the ultimate end of your entire existence, which should lead you to worship beyond all things and should be the central thing on your mind at all times, probably isn't for all of us in here. We all. And that's the issue. But that's why Paul is writing this letter in the first place. It's because we all, as humans, still battle with sin. We still all falter and fail to properly live as we ought, even though we've been united to Christ. That's the greatest tension in all the New Testament, is the already not yet. We have already been made, reconciled with God. We're already communing with God, but yet there's this thing in our heart that we can't seem to figure out, that we don't get excited. G.K. Chesterton, this is off the books, but G.K. Chesterton, he says that uh, it's not that we are young uh, and that God is old, but it's actually that God is young in heart and we are old. We've become callous to the beauties and the graces of every day. He He calls it the ethics of Elfland. He says that the reality that in a fairy tale or in a fiction story that the princess holds out her hand and the apple forms in a second and lands in her hand, we call that magic. But the fact that it takes three, four, five, I don't know how, much, how long, 
maybe three months to grow an apple in our world, that's fine. It's not a big deal. The fact that it comes out of nothing and grows itself, it's a time thing. We're callous. We're slow of heart. We're so quick to get bored with the beauty of this world. I went off there. (laughs) Who knows? Uh, So then, basically what I'm saying is what's so great about union with with Christ and therefore union and communion with God? Um, But that's literally why Paul wrote this. Because what did he say in verse 11? He says, remember. He's telling us to remember something because he knows we're going to forget. They already are Christians. He's confident that we will be slow of heart and to forget. And so in verse 19 and 20, he summarizes and reminds us. He says, remember, you are no longer Australians, uh, strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So, you are no longer aliens. You are no longer excluded from the Jews. But you're actually members. You're citizens of the saints of all nations. You are the community of God's people gathered to worship him. Therefore, we have a unity amongst ourselves that is outrageous. It's different than the whole rest of the world can experience. It's unique. Not only that, but therefore, you are no longer strangers to the covenants of promise. But what does he say? This is the beauty. He says, but you're actually members of the household of God. Members of the household of God. Members of the household of God. Yeah, come on. Let's go. Seriously. We said, I said earlier that the, the epitome of the inner ring is family. And what he's saying here is that we've been adopted into the family of God. If family is the pinnacle or the epitome of the inner circle, how much more the family of God? This is the ultimate inner circle. This is it. We've reached it, and Christ has made it possible that we should get there. Okay. So family is where we've been brought. J.I. Packer, who's just an amazing theologian, he says that Father, therefore, is the Christian name for God. Of all the names that we could call God, it is most fitting for those who have put their faith in Jesus to call him Father. He goes on to say, find out how much one makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as Father If this is not the thought that prompts and controls one's worship, prayers, and whole outlook on life, it means that one may not fully understand what Christianity is yet. So many people argue on the basis of them having terrible earthly fathers fathers, that they can't relate with God as Father. I would argue that that's actually not the case. I would argue that having a terrible father actually makes you far more capable of understanding acutely what makes a great, what the characteristics, the attributes, the the presence, the manner that makes a perfect father because you're so acutely aware of what you don't have. 
So I would encourage all, whether you've had a great father or a terrible father, to begin to use that to think about God as your ultimate father. Um, so I said, I said earlier that my wife, Melissa, and I um, lost our son, Elliot, uh, stillborn nine months ago. Um, and actually, there's been a unique thing that's happened in my heart through that. Is I think all of us have people that we love, um, love so much so that we would sacrifice anything for. I would sacrifice, I've never actively fathered a day in my life, nor have I met my son, but I love him so much that I would give everything for him. I would sacrifice everything for him. God has sacrificed his only perfect son, who he's lived in perfect communion with from eternity, for orphans who were lost and broken and rebellious to him. That, that's, the, that's the love of a father. That's the indissoluble, breathtaking, everlasting, change-your-life type of love. That's the love that will make you cry. Now, God's love for us is not psychotherapeutic self-talk um, saying like, I'm so great, God has loved me. The love of God is meant to reflect on God himself. Any thought about God that doesn't terminate on God is a wrong thought about God. His glory is ultimate. Because he loved us even when we were sinners. Even when we were rebellious orphans. He loved us all the while. That doesn't say much about us. That says a lot about him. He is the center point of all of our worship. Praise God. Mm. So let's go into what this actually practically means, because I like to live up here. But like, let's talk about what does it actually mean? What, what are practical reminders to a child of God? Um, so the first very practical reminder to a child of God is that um, help is personal. And what that means is that um, suffering is a reality, even for children of God. And what help is personal means is not that suffering gets any e easier, but it means that suffering is vested with a new value that infinitely transcends the way that suffering used to be handled apart from Christ. Because we know that suffering acts as chemotherapy to stage four metastasizing cancer of sin. That's just the reality. Suffering shows us our sin and shows us our Savior in ways that we can never see apart from it. So, sin, uh, so suffering is suffering because it's suffering. So suffering doesn't become not suffering. Hard things are hard because they're hard. But suffering becomes infinitely more valuable because we grow in nearness to our Father through it. And he's with us all the way. Not only that, but he's given us means of communing with him 
through prayer and the word that are outrageous. The fact that we have access in one spirit to the Father through the word and prayer, help is personal. It is personal. And he cares intimately for us because he's already proved it. In action. We don't just have to say, God loves me. God loves me. God has loved you to an infinite degree. Look at the cross. He sacrificed everything for us. So the second point is hope is assured. I don't know if you noticed in the passage that we just read, um, but did you see any uh, imperatives, any, any commands? There's only one, and it's to remember. Which means that the adoption that has been won on our behalf by God through Christ is assured and its surety is resting purely on God and God alone. There's no command of what we have to do to reciprocate. It is a signed, sealed, and delivered work that by faith and belief is brought to us because it's faith and belief that unites us to Christ. That means that hope is absolutely assured because it's impossible, straight up impossible, for God to be unfaithful to his promises. And he has formally adopted us in Christ through his spirit. That breeds some assurance. And last, and the third point is um, actually the way Paul ends his message. The final two verses, Paul ends uh, with holiness is pursued. So just a reminder to a child of God is that holiness is pursued. Uh, Paul says in verses 21 and 22, he says, In Christ, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, these verses are paralleled. In Greek, they're the same, uh, with slight nuances and differences. But the reality is that it's pointing to the ultimate truth that whether corporately or individually, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the church of Christ, both corporately and individually, we seek to be made more like Christ. It's just the reality. That is a reminder to a child of God is that you will seek to be like your father. If you love God, and we learned a lot about this in in John's epistle, 1 John, that if you love God, you will hate sin. And if you love sin, you will hate that sin. You will hate the fact that you love it. (laughs) So all of us will at some points begin to love sin. But it's the hate of that love that shows us that we love our Father. Because love of sin is enmity with God. It's impossible. They're mutually exclusive things. They cannot be reconciled. Thus, it's just a natural, logical reminder to a child of God that Paul goes into that you who have been made children have been brought into members of the household of God. Yeah, you are going to grow into a holy temple in the Lord, a dwelling place for God. That's the same thing. It just means that you're going to grow in holiness because where does God dwell most nearly? In his holy temple, in his presence. Now, the final point is united with Christ, I become like Christ. But if you're looking for something to do as a result of this sermon, so I haven't given much application, 
Uh, That's purposeful. It's because Paul doesn't give any application. But what Paul does say is remember. So we've done that. But then also Paul's expecting his readers to go on from this point and actually read the rest of Ephesians. So I would encourage you if you're like, oh, what should I do as a result of being made a child of God? Take that reality. Take that union with Christ and the resulting childhood of God that you've been given and go and read the rest of Ephesians. It's like four pages. So even if you're not a huge reader. uh, And there, Paul actually outlines what it is to be a child of God. All of that, all that like command section, you probably never read Ephesians as a book. But like I said at the beginning, Ephesians is meant to overflow into itself. The first three chapters, what God has done, is meant to be the framework on which all the commands are built. Never read a command without the underlying assumption that you've already been saved. Because we are not saved by works. We're saved by grace. And works are the result. They are simply fitting of the activity of God's redemption in us that's already taken place. It's just fitting. It's just the natural result. It's just a reminder. So, finally, we know that united, and this is the nail, this is the the pinnacle of Paul's message, is that united with Christ, I made a child of God. We are made children of the Most High. We commune with our triune God. Union of Christ is most fully realized in adoption. And adoption is most fully manifested in sanctification or becoming holy or becoming like Christ. It's all connected. And it's the beauty of Paul's message that we are supposed to remember these things. So let's pray and let's just worship God because he is, he is supremely worthy. He's the only one, just a quick aside, he's the only one worthy of worship in the whole universe, but he's also supremely worthy of worship. He's not just worthy of the lowest level of what a being who is worthy of worship would be. He is supremely worthy of all worship, not only throughout our entire lives and everything we think, say, and do, but actually throughout all of eternity. And we were created to be satisfied in worship. And so if you feel a joy inside of you when you worship, that's the satisfaction that the Father gives to his children when they are communing most nearly and doing the thing that they were called to do from the very beginning. It's simply fitting. Let's pray. Father, oh, Father, your children come to you, Lord, and we delight to relate with you through your Son and by your Spirit. Lord, we recognize that our salvation was a Trinitarian act of you to purpose, accomplish, and bring to fruition our salvation. And God, we just rest. We rest that our hope is assured in you. Lord, we rest in the fact that your help is personal and that you personally are with us through every storm. Lord, and we just ask that by your spirit, you would bring us into conformity with your son, Jesus, that we might dwell most nearly and clearly and dearly and just perfectly with you because you're worthy of it all. 
the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And we just want to be near you. And we want to know you. And Lord, we look forward to heaven. Lord, we look forward to your coming. We say, come Lord Jesus, when the trumpet sounds, we will look with joy and awe because we have assurance that you have done it. Lord, we praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.